0: I can tell you got ready this morning, that's good, how do you get ready in the morning, what do you do, like, what's your, what's your routine, alarm clock goes off, you snooze it once, you snooze it twice, do you snooze, are you, twice you snooze it or just once, oh, none, oh, you're hard, okay, I get it, you're just like, you're legit, you don't care, it's like, I'm just gonna, immediately, Wake up. I get it. Okay. Uh, So you do that, and then you get up, and I assume the first thing you do, like a normal person, you go brush your teeth, right? Like that should be the first thing that's done This is just my opinion right now, but like uh, that's like probably the first thing you should do because your breath kind of stinks, and nobody likes that. Even if you're eating breakfast, like just give it a little bit of time, brush your teeth. Uh, What do you do next? What's the next thing you do? okay, go to the bathroom, wash your face. That's good. Sometimes that can wake you up in the morning, like go up immediately, go wash your face. That's really good. Then at some point, maybe eat some breakfast. Who eats breakfast in here? Who doesn't eat breakfast in here? Okay, all right, about 50-50. And then uh, the people who didn't want to vote. Okay, I get it. Uh, Yeah, that's what you do. And then afterwards, at some point, you put your clothes on, right? Your normal day clothes, right? You're wearing your pajamas, but you change out of that at some point. You put on your normal clothes, like once you put on your jeans or your like pants for the day, you're like ready to go. And then you put on your socks and shoes. Are you like a sock, shoe, sock, shoe person? Or are you a normal person? Sock, sock, shoe, shoe. Did you even catch the first one? Sorry, it was just like too weird, right? Sock, shoe, sock, shoe. Have you heard people do this? Yeah. Well, people do a lot of bad things, but that's one of the bad things that people do. Yeah, that's right. Psychopaths do that. Anyway, so yeah, then at some point, you're out the door. Ready to go. Well, I would guess if it was colder here, there'd be more preparation that would take to get outside, right? Because you're pretty much at this point of the year gonna not have to wear jackets as much. Your jackets are just like an accessory at this point. You, you take them on, you take them off. You don't really need them anymore. When it's wintertime, maybe you need them. And when you live in a place that's really cold, you got more preparation to do, right? Long socks, big boots, maybe a couple layers, more preparation, right? I'd say you'd have even more preparation to get ready and go out in the morning if you were a soldier. You'd have a lot more things to put on because if you were going to walk out into a war zone, it wouldn't just be, okay, I'll wear my nice coat and I'll wear my, you know, long socks. It's going to be more preparation. The more danger you're in when you go outside, the more preparation it takes before you walk out the door. If you were here last week, we said that Every person in this room, whether you're Christian, non-Christian, whatever you are in this room, every day that you wake up, you walk into a spiritual war zone. There's a war going on, and it's happening, and the problem is most people never get ready in the morning. Most people who walk into the spiritual war, whether you're a Christian or not, many people walk into their spiritual war like they're going to school. They're wearing shorts, they're wearing a t-shirt, maybe a jacket, maybe a backpack, something like that, and they're leaving the house when in reality they should be putting armor on, they should be putting a helmet on, they should be putting some kind of bulletproof vest on because they're about to be spiritually attacked. Obviously, I'm saying those things figuratively. Don't walk out of the house cosplaying as a you know knight. That would be weird. But you should recognize that we're in a war. That's what we talked about last week. This week... But we're going to say from Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, God has given you so much to prepare you to fight the spiritual battle. And if we're losing in the spiritual battle, don't blame God. Don't blame someone else. Say, have I been using the tools that God has given me to win? God makes it very clear in his word. Check it out. Ephesians chapter 6. Open a Bible. Open a phone. Check it out. Ephesians chapter 6. Let's look at this together. We're almost done with the book here. We've only got like three sermons left until the end of the year. We send the seniors off. We finish the book of Ephesians. We start something new. But here at the end of the book, Paul's going to say, Okay, you're in a spiritual war. He already said that last week. He said, Our enemy is not flesh and blood. So don't think that your enemy is some person who's a human who's trying to mess with your life. It's not your parents. It's not a teacher. It's not some authority figure. That's not what's messing with life. It is a person, it's a person named Satan who has demons that work with him and for him and for his causes, but it's not flesh and blood. So there's a lot of spiritual forces behind what we face. There's a spiritual war happening. We don't always recognize it. He says, just know that. The last verse that we covered last week was verse 13. Let's start there. Let's do a little overlap. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, because you have this enemy, take up or put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. So prepare, get ready. You've got a a battle coming, and the main command is to stand, and then to withstand the attacks, and then to stand. Look at verse 14. What's the command? First word, stand, therefore. Standing in a defensive posture. Like, don't give up any ground. Like, there's an enemy, there's a battle, there's a whole line of soldiers that are going to push against your position. You're supposed to dig in your heels and not give any ground. That's what the word stand means. Stand in this spiritual battle. Therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So he's going to give this image of this like Roman soldier, and he's going to borrow imagery from the Old Testament. We'll talk about all that. But what I want you to imagine right now, as he talks about a belt and all these other pieces of equipment, I want you to imagine what it would look like to get dressed in the morning— as a Roman soldier. The first thing you would do, you'd have your robe on, right? That's kind of your under robe. What you would do first is you would have a belt. And a lot of what they would do is they would tuck part of their robe into the belt so that they wouldn't be like tripping over a long dress as they're walking, right? These Roman soldiers were ready. So kind of odd image, but they kind of took their big, long robes, tucked them in so that their their skirts wouldn't get in the way, right? Basically is the idea. Ladies, you ever try to run in a prom dress, right? How does that go? Doesn't go very well. If you wanted to run, what do you got to do? You got to pick all that flowy stuff up down here, right, and pick it up and run. There's an image in the Bible of that that he uses that word right here to tie this belt around. There's this image in the Bible called girding up your loins, kind of odd old English, right? Here's what that means. To take your dress or your robe, to pick up the loose parts, pick it up above your knees so that you can run in a certain direction. So the first thing these soldiers would do was put on a belt, The belt would hold some of the weapons. The belt would hold the robes in place. It was the first thing that a soldier would do. Next, he says, okay, you got this belt of truth. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. Then you, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So he's describing another piece of armor. A breastplate is like a bulletproof vest. It's like something that covers your chest that you put on. You can imagine the old armor, right? It's like Metal, it goes right here. How do you put it on? Well, you put it on because there's a, you know, straps on both sides. There's probably metal on the back, metal on the front. It's called the breastplate. And then you tie it and you cinch it together. So you've got a bulletproof vest thing going on. That's what every soldier did second. After you tie on a belt, then you've got to put on some kind of protection that covers your heart and your organs and things like that. He says spiritually, that breastplate is righteousness. Then next thing you would put on is shoes, right? He puts on your shoes early in this process. and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So it says the third piece of armor, it's not really armor, but it is essential, is to strap something on your feet. What these Roman soldiers would do is they took these sandals that weren't just flip flops. I mean, imagine trying to fight in flip flops. Not going to go very well, right? Imagine trying to like push against the enemy wearing flip flops. Not going to work. Even Birkenstocks, right? Not a very good idea, right? They're going to slip off. Slides, very bad idea. Crocs, maybe, right? They didn't have Crocs, so maybe that's, uh, no. Here's what they were, okay? They weren't Crocs. Crocs in sport mode is kind of similar to what these were, right? You know, Never mind, too much information. I've never owned a pair of Crocs. We're not gonna talk about it. But some of you like Crocs, so there you go. Just trying to put it in your language. Anyway, so here's what the shoes were. A thick piece of leather as the sole, and then straps of leather that are wrapped tightly around the leg so that you, it would take like, a minute or two to put them on or take them off, right? And they weren't just like sandals with a flat bottom. What they did on these Roman uh, war sandals is they would poke these nails through the bottom of them, not into their feet, but into the ground, so they acted like cleats. So have you ever been at a, like a professional football game or um, even a high school football game when the team walks down the tunnel and their feet, if they've got metal cleats, they make that click, 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 click on the concrete. That's what happened when the Roman soldiers walked around. The, the feet that they had, the, the, the sandals that they had on, had like spikes on them. So they're basically cleats is what they wore. And what they found out was early on, uh, you could go a lot faster. You could be a lot better soldier if you had these cleats on. In fact, Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar are famous for like, changing their whole army and, and the equipment that they used. And one of the key components that made them walk faster and get to a town three days ahead of time was we got to make these really cool shoes so these shoes that they would wear he says here are like the readiness given to us as christians by the gospel of peace so we put on a belt we put on a breastplate and now we got shoes on our feet truth righteousness the gospel all these things we're supposed to equip ourselves with every day to fight the spiritual battle look at what's next verse 16 he says then in all circumstances whether you leave the house or don't leave the house whether you're going to school, whether you're going to work, whether you're going to church, in all circumstances, there's something you can't forget to bring. He says, Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The word shield in Greek is the same word as the word door. That's helpful. There's two kinds of shields that they would use back then there was a small shield, and then there was a big shield. This is the big shield, this is the door shaped shield. Is usually a big oval, right? And they would use it. You've seen all those old Spartan type movies, right? Where like they all get in line and they hide underneath and they can put their shields together and become like this immovable force. Whether there's darts, which is not really the good term. I hate the word darts. Darts are like the little British thing that people throw, you know, like that rubber band that just got thrown. Uh, They're just like the little, um, little darts. That's not what he's talking about here. The word dart this word in Greek, if you look it up, it means two things, or three things. Arrows, missiles, or javelins. So when I hear like, oh, you blocked the flaming darts, it's like, oh, Satan like threw a little dart and you just went like, you know. What kind of sound does it make? No, this is like someone shooting fiery javelins out of like a crossbow from across the battlefield, flying in the air. How do you protect yourself? Not a small shield, No but a big shield, the shield called faith. So some things that you should know there, okay, they got these shields, it's a big shield, as big as a door almost, and you've also seen here that Paul says there's these attacks that Satan is gonna lob at God's people that are compared to fiery arrows. You, you imagine you know, an arrow on fire, shot into a city, what's the whole point? It's meant to burn the whole place down, to do a lot of damage. And he says, if you have faith, particularly in God, you can hide in that faith and you can hold that up and you can block a lot of the spiritual attacks that come. He says next, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. So this thing, the helmet, right, is what it's supposed to do, protect your head. That's the most important part. I mean, imagine you got all the armor on and you walk out in a war zone. You're gonna be covering your head the whole time. You, You can't even like think straight. You can't move forward without your head being protected. You got no confidence to move forward, you need your head protected. So he says the helmet is a helmet of salvation. And then the next thing, last thing, and the sword of the spirit. The first offensive weapon. All that has been defense. It's all been helping equip you. But there's something that you utilize. He says the sword of the spirit. I wonder what that is. Well, he defines it. It's one of the few that he actually tells us what it is. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You might notice it's going to continue the sentence in the next week. That's, we're going to talk about something different next week, verses 18 through 20, that give us really the, the main tool that we use. But before all that, he, he gives all these pieces of equipment that are figurative, right? God's not giving you a real sword. He's not giving you a real shield. And he's not expecting real like arrows to be thrown at you. But here's what he is expecting. Each and every one of you, every day when you wake up, you will face spiritual attacks. You will face temptation. You will face uh, Despair. You will face even sometimes depression. You'll face a lot of different things that Satan will try to throw at you to try to get you to follow his schemes. And God's word says, I've given you so much to equip you. Here's the problem. Do you notice it doesn't say find these things or make these things? It says take them up, put them on. The whole idea here is that God has given us truth, righteousness, the gospel, He's given us salvation. He's given us righteousness. He's given us all these things to what? To protect us. But here's the problem. Many of you, in fact, I'd say all of you, if you're a Christian, you have this armor. You have these tools. Here's the problem. We don't take them up. We don't use them. Some of us pray, God, give me strength for this thing. Give me help with this thing. And those aren't always bad prayers, but sometimes... If God would respond back to you, he might say something like, I've already given you those things. It's time for you to do it. You want to pray for protection? Well, God's given you the shield of faith. Use it. The whole point is don't pray for these things. We are going to talk about prayer next week. But the idea is you've been given all these things. Are you actually using them? Some of you think, okay, we are in a spiritual battle, and and I have been falling into a lot of temptation recently. Why, Why is that happening? I'd point you back to this passage and say, have we been utilizing the means that God has given us? Or have we been lazy about it? I think in nine times out of ten we're going to find there's probably been some laziness and some spiritual apathy on our part for why we're falling the way that we are. God's given us these tools. We want to understand them and use them. That's what today's all about. I want you to understand these tools and use these tools. Don't let them lay dormant like many of us do. Don't misunderstand them and then never use the tools that God's given you to fight. The first one is the belt of truth. Okay, what does that mean? Well, belts. It's the first thing you put on in the day. It uh, helps you gird up your loins. It gets everything out of the way. It prepares you. That's what belts are meant to do. They're meant to prepare you and to keep you unhindered. That's the idea. So point number one, if we're going to understand the belt of truth, I want you to prepare for an intense fight wearing the belt of truth. Prepare for an intense fight. That's what a belt was all about. It's it's preparation. It's getting you ready. It's keeping you unhindered, keeping you undistracted. The belt of truth, it it, it holds everything together. Peter uses a similar phrase. He uses the phrase, gird up your loins. But he says in 1 Peter 1, he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Literally, gird up the loins of your mind. So your mind, every day, you're going to think about things. You're going to consider things. He says, it's like he got robes and distractions and things that you need to tie up. It's like, hey, refocus every day. Some of us never refocus. Some of us never think about the spiritual battle. You wake up, you you look at your phone, you distract yourself for 30 minutes and you're late for school and then you go throughout your whole day and you never stop and consider, I'm in a spiritual battle. Oh, I'm gonna face temptation today. Oh, Satan's gonna attack me in a lot of different ways. I need to be prepared. Some of us never do that. And the idea here, he says, what's the thing that helps you do this? It's truth, truth, thinking on the truth. Knowing the truth about God, about yourself, about all the things described in his word. Truth is what does this. I told you that Paul borrowed some of these ideas from the Old Testament. This one he does borrow from the Old Testament. There's someone in the Old Testament who wore a belt of truth and righteousness and steadfast love. I mean, if you know who this person is in the Old Testament, sometimes you think this is a New Testament person, but uh, it's actually Jesus in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 11 is a prophecy about Jesus, about the Messiah who would come. And it says he will come wearing a belt of righteousness and truth. It'll it'll be like everything about him. It will keep him unhindered. When he's dealing with the disciples, he's never going to get distracted. Why? Because he's got the belt of truth and righteousness. He's going to do what's right all the time. He's always going to walk forward. He's never going to get distracted with other things. He's always going to do what God wants him to do. Why? Because he's got a belt on. Belt of what? Truth. Righteousness. Even when you're living out the truth, this is another aspect of this. It's not just the truth that you know. The belt of truth, one way that that kind of shows itself in our life, is we are oftentimes most undistracted in fighting the spiritual battle when we have a, a good conscience or a clear conscience. That means that you're not constantly weighed down by all the sin you did yesterday. You know how you, the first step of avoiding getting weighed down by the sin that you commit yesterday? Well then, don't do the sin yesterday. Right? Well you can't change yesterday. Well don't do the sin today. There's a passage that says this very clearly. That if you're living in the truth and living with integrity and not making your life a lie and not lying to your coaches and siblings and teachers and you're just, you're just honest and living in the truth. And if you don't do something you say, I didn't do it. And if you did something, right, say you did it. Right? Don't claim to do something you didn't do. If you're just living in the truth. Listen to this. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19. Paul says, This charge, this command, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them, by the truth, you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So he says, okay, you're in this battle. You're in this fight. Here's what you need, okay? This is going to make you successful if you have a good conscience, if you're, you're doing the right thing, if you're living in the truth, because guess what? Each and every one of us can say, I, I know how I've been hindered because I've got a conscience that's weighed down by all this sin. He says, no, live in such a way where your conscience doesn't get weighed down because you're doing what's right. Live with a good conscience. He says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And then he goes on to describe people who used to be sitting in church who stopped going to church. People who used to be going to small groups who stopped going to small groups. Why? Because they didn't hold a good conscience. Because they sinned and sinned and sinned. And then they walked away like, I don't even want to deal with it anymore. And they walked away. He lists those people. And he says, The problem is that they've been ensnared by the devil. Like, Satan's had his way with those people. That's why they're not here anymore. That's why they're not going to church anymore. That's why they're not following Christ anymore. Where'd it start? What well, started with them not having a good conscience. Some of you, even as I talk about your conscience, you think, yeah, well, if he could read my mind, if he could know what's going on, yeah, I, don't, I don't want him to do that. You never heard the old story? It's like an old 1800s story about a man who came into a town and wrote a letter, same letter, to 10 of the most powerful men in town. The letter that this guy wrote said this, I know what you did. You need to leave town today or I will tell everyone. This new guy comes into town, doesn't know anybody. He's testing, testing the waters, right? Sends this letter to the 10 most powerful men. He's got no dirt on him. He doesn't know anything, right? But he sends this anonymous letter. Nine out of 10 of them leave. One doesn't. One stays. One got a letter that says, I know what you did. If you don't leave by tomorrow, I'm going to tell everybody. He said, okay. What, what did I do? I, don't, I didn't do anything. Nothing that would like keep me down with this horrible conscience. If everyone found out, it would be like, no, that's fine. I've been doing the right thing. Nine out of ten of them, these powerful men, right? Whatever they did, who knows what they did? But they know what they did. They didn't have a good conscience. Prepare for an intense fight with the belt of truth. That means that one of the reasons why some of us fail in this spiritual battle is because we're constantly weighed down by the sin that we've committed in the past. And rightfully so if you haven't repented of your sin that you've done in the past and, and you haven't given it to God and you haven't asked for forgiveness, well, then I guess I, I understand why it's not um, why it's hindering you, why it's weighing you down. But if you have confessed it, you can move on. You can be clean. That's what the belt of truth is all about. Right? Knowing the truth and living a truthful life keeps you unhindered from this battle. A belt is not the only thing you need. In fact, it's the primary thing, I guess, the first thing, but it's not armor belt is not an armor. Right? I'm wearing a belt. Maybe you're wearing a belt. I'm not wearing armor. The first piece of real armor is the breastplate. It's like the bulletproof vest, right? It's the thing that protects your chest and your heart and your organs. If you're walking out into a battle and you're wearing a breastplate, if, if someone comes up to you and has a sword and slashes you across the chest, right, no breastplate, well, you're in a lot of trouble. You're, you did a little open-heart surgery, right? You got a breastplate on, you're okay, you might have got knocked down, but if someone smacks you with their sword long ways, yeah, you might get knocked and hit down, but but you're okay. You're going to live. Right? You might get shot with a bulletproof vest, but you're going to probably live, unless the bullet was you know, going too fast, but you're going to most of the time be okay. You're going to get knocked over, perhaps, but you'll make it. The breastplate of righteousness. Let's understand what that means. Okay, point number two, I want you to guard your heart, because that's what a breastplate protects. Guard your heart. With the breastplate of righteousness. What is this breastplate of righteousness? What's going to protect you when you're shot at, when you're assailed by the devil? Is it your righteousness? Is it, oh, I'm a good person. Oh, I've done the right thing. Here's the thing. You might create for yourself a pretend breastplate of your own righteousness, but it's not going to stand up in temptation. You can't say, oh, I'm a righteous person. I won't fall. No, you can't do that because if you understand who you really are and you understand your righteousness correctly, you know that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. We fail, each and every one of us. We're not righteous. You need someone else's righteousness, in fact. That's why I mentioned, some of this comes from the Old Testament. Jesus is said to wear it in Isaiah 11. Well, Jesus is also mentioned in Isaiah 59, in the passage where it says that everyone's turned aside from God and, and everyone sinned, and. The sin has created a separation between them and God. That passage, Isaiah 59.2. Later in the passage, God stands up, the Lord, Yahweh, and he says, I looked around and I saw nobody that was going to fix this problem, so I strapped on the armor myself. And in that passage, he says, I put on the helmet of salvation and I put on the breastplate of righteousness. So in Isaiah 59, it's a description of Jesus coming to earth to deal with the sin problem. Whose righteousness is it? It's Jesus's righteousness. Here's the idea in all of Ephesians 6. All of these instruments belong to Jesus while he lived on earth. And now that you're in him, now you get to use his instruments, his sword of the spirit, his Breastplate of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Yours, not yours, his. Paul puts it like this in Philippians 3. He says, After listing all the good things that he's done and how righteous he thought he was before he got saved, he said, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever righteous piece of armor I was building for myself, it was just tin cans, just aluminum. I count it as loss. I'll I'll, I'll take that piece of armor off. It's not righteous. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I'll get rid of my self-righteousness and all that I've accomplished because it's not gonna protect me because I've sinned, I've messed up. I'm, I'm undone, as Isaiah said. He says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish. I take all my self-righteousness. I thought I was so good. I thought my righteousness could protect me. And, and then guess what you find? Your righteousness can't protect you from anything. You think you're a good person? Oh, yeah, but then you fall to sin. Yeah, it didn't protect you. Couldn't be kept from sin. You couldn't be kept from even the enslavement to sin. You can't even be protected. Why? Because your righteousness is a bad and lousy breastplate. It's not a good, it's not a, it's like a, a pocket vest. with. You know, it's not a bulletproof vest. It doesn't protect you from anything. But, Philippians 3, 9 says, and being found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God dependent on faith. He says, now I'm safe. Now I'm secure. Now I can fight this spiritual battle and I can even win. And I don't have to sin today. Why? Does that mean I'm not gonna be attacked? No, you are gonna be attacked. That's the whole point but now you've got a piece of armor that actually works. If you're a Christian, you understand there was a time where your armor, so to speak, to keep yourself from temptation, didn't do anything. But then there came a day where God saved you, and then afterwards, guess what? You had the armor of God. You could say no to sin. You didn't have to sin like you would had to before. You were enslaved to before. And then what? Jesus releases you from that. Now you have this protection. All these are just images to point to what Jesus does in the life of somebody who becomes a Christian. Here's the idea, you have his righteousness that's dependent on faith from God. What are you safe from? You're safe from the wrath of God, you're safe from the condemnation that you deserve, right? Romans eight says that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You have a bulletproof vest of righteousness. Whose righteousness, yours? Nope, Jesus's, his righteousness. You're safe, will you get shot at? Yes, but you're safe because it's more powerful than anything that could come against you. Romans 8 talks about that all the time. It says at the beginning of the chapter, there's therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, there was condemnation when we were outside of Christ, when we weren't connected to him vitally through a relationship. Now that we're in Christ and we've been saved, everyone who's in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, he's a new creation, Why? Because they made themselves new? No, because you're in Christ now. The old is gone, the new has come. God has made you a new creation. You have the breastplate of righteousness, and it's strong. Put it on. Use it. Think about it. Consider it. Practically, even, this affects the way that you live. Obviously, if you have the righteousness of Christ, your life is going to look more righteous. That's not going to be your protection and your shield, but even in the Scriptures, a righteous life is helpful, like we talked about in the first point, having a clear conscience. Living a righteous life does make a difference, especially when you're thinking about praying. It's a lot, you know, it's a lot harder to, to pray in the morning when you just got done sinning the night before. Then you remember all that, 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 that sin in the morning. You're like, I don't, I don't know if I'm gonna pray today. So it's a lot harder to share the truth with your friends and share the gospel with them when you were just engaged in all the same sin with them. Guess what? You're probably not gonna do it because you were hindered. Inversely, it's a lot easier to share the truth with your friends, when you are standing out, when you are living for Christ. It's a lot easier to go to God when you're living in a right relationship with him and you're not falling into all the sin all the time, when you are keeping yourself away from it. Your practical righteousness matters too. Paul uses truth and righteousness in another analogy in Second Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians is a funny book. Basically, it's about this. All these people saying about Paul you are not legit. Over and over again, you're not legit. So all the people that heard the gospel from Paul were kind of getting concerned like, should we have listened to him? Is what he said true? So 2 Corinthians is him writing to say, there's all this slander about me, okay? I want to remind you, nope, I'm legit and the message I delivered to you, it's real too. That's what 2 Corinthians is about. And in chapter six, he says, look, if I'm slandered, it's okay. He says, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, whatever people say about me, through slander and praise, whether people praise me or slander me, or whether they honor me or dishonor me, it's okay, I don't care, because I've got righteousness, I'm doing the right thing, I don't have to be concerned when people say, oh, Paul's you know, misleading people, Paul's doing the wrong thing, it's like, I don't care what you say, I'm doing the right thing, I know, because I'm following what Jesus said, I've got no concern about this, whether I'm honored or praised or, or dishonored or shamed because I've got a clear conscience. We're treated as imposters, yet we are true. The whole point is people are slandering him and he can say, ah, you know, one of the reasons I know that their slander is wrong and I don't lose sleep at night over it is because I'm living a righteous life. I've got righteousness in my right hand and my left hand. That is helpful. It's like, have you ever read the early Psalms? So like Psalm 1 to Psalm 39, that first book. Most of them by David. And he's talking all the time about his enemies and what he says often. It just strikes you if you think about it. He's like, God, I know that they're wrong and I'm right. I know that you're with me and you're not with them. I know that because I've been blameless. I've been living righteously. And it's like, you ever read that and think like, it makes me feel a little uncomfortable, right? Like, I'm not blameless. Like, I'm not as righteous as David is saying he is. Like, this is, this is uncomfortable. One of the reasons he can write that so strongly, he's not lying. He is telling the truth. It's because he's been walking with God, because he's doing the right thing day after day, choice after choice. Is he perfect? No, he's not perfect. But the idea is he's got righteousness in his right hand, like a breastplate, and it's like it protects him, even from temptation and even from people attacking him. He's like, "I, I trust God. It's not a big deal. The breastplate of righteousness. That's the first piece of armor. The third thing is not armor anymore. Now we're going back to something else. We want to talk about these shoes. What are the shoes all about? the war cleats, right, the, the, the sandals that are strapped every which way on your foot, so much so that you're locked in, and so much so that you could get down in a football stance like an offensive lineman, and you can block, and nobody has to get by you. Why? Because your feet are firmly planted, because you've got good shoes on. What are the shoes? He says the shoes are the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So there's something about you knowing the gospel of peace that makes you ready to do whatever God calls you to. There's something about being solidly grounded as an offensive lineman that makes you think I can push and I know I'm not gonna like tear a hamstring hamstring or like break my ankle. Why? Because my feet are good. I got solid ground. It's totally fine. I'm gonna push and I, I trust that my feet are gonna hold me. Knowing the gospel of peace does that. Point number three, Once you write this down. I want you to strap on the war cleats of the gospel every morning, the gospel. What does it do for us? It prepares us. It gets us ready. It reminds us, look, I've got my biggest problem solved with God. This is called the gospel of peace for a reason. (laughs) This is all war analogy, but he says, no, no, no. You, you're good. You're on solid ground. You have the war cleats of the gospel of peace. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 5. This is exactly what he's trying to get at here. Romans 5.1, he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, which means God said, you're righteous now. The word righteous and the word justified are always connected. So he says, now that you got the breastplate of righteousness on and you're safe, he says, we have peace with God. Now we don't have to go to God afraid of him punishing us. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access to God by faith. Into this grace in which we stand, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He says, look, now that we know I'm righteous, I'm justified before God, I can have peace with God. And that changes the way I view everything. I think that's what Paul's trying to get at with the whole strapping on the the shoes of the readiness of the gospel peace. That's what he's getting at. Now that your biggest problem is solved, now that you're right with God, now that you know the gospel and believe the gospel, your feet, you're ready to do whatever God wants you to do. In fact, you wouldn't be ready to do anything if you didn't have the gospel. It's foundational, just like your feet. I mean, imagine some big soldier walks out of his house, and he's got all of his armor on. He's got 50 pounds of armor, but he's got no shoes on. He let the dogs out, right? They're just there for everyone to see, right? Not a good-ass situation, right? You are not going to make it anywhere. Your feet are going to start bleeding. How far can you make it without your shoes? Or, better yet, your war cleats. How far? Not very far. You can't even hold all your armor because your feet are going to hurt, right? Even a strong soldier can't do it without his shoes, his war cleats. You can't even live a single day. You can't even do what God wants you to do unless you are regularly considering what God has done for you, the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news, that you are sinful and separated from God, but God has done something about it. As I quoted in Isaiah 59. God looked and he saw no one was going to solve the problem, so he did it himself. He strapped on the breastplate of righteousness and he put on the helmet of salvation and he accomplished salvation for us. That's what Jesus did. Jesus wears those instruments and now he gives them to us. Consider that. Some people look at this passage and think, it kind of sounds like this other Isaiah passage where feet are talked about. Feet are even called beautiful, which is not true feet are not beautiful feet are the worst part of you no offense they're not good right they weren't good back then they're not good now no offense but here's what God says God's word says in Isaiah 52 he says how beautiful are the feet of those who carry the good news Those who publish peace, who bring good news of happiness, who publish salvation, who say to Zion, right, where God's people were, God's city, who say this, your God reigns. Even like the grossest part of a person who does that is beautiful in God's eyes because they're bringing the good news. People have made the connection between that passage and the passage we're studying in Ephesians, and I understand why. Because the, the shoes that get us ready to go where we need to go represent the gospel and our understanding of the gospel. What do our shoes do? Well, our shoes and our feet, they take us places. What are we supposed to go and do to the places we go? We're supposed to take the gospel. So yeah, are they the shoes that take us there? Yes. Also, for us, it's the message that we're giving to people. I mean, if you want to take the shoe analogy a little further, it's like we've got these shoes on, we're ready to go, and we're saying, hey, you need these shoes. Come with me. Strap on these war cleats and let's go forward. That's the the idea here. We're ready because we have these shoes on, so to speak. Inversely, like, if you take off the shoes, if you forsake the gospel, if you want to say that God doesn't care about sin, if you want to say that God accepts everyone just because they're good, if you want to forsake what Jesus did, his substitutionary atonement, that he died on the cross for sinners, and if you want to say, no, 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 we must just get right with God by being good people or by trying some things, you forsake the gospel, you're taking off your war cleats. You can't go anywhere. You can't advance in the Christian life. If you forsake the gospel, that's why Paul got so mad at people when he thought, You're changing the gospel. In Galatians chapter 1, he says, I'm astonished, I'm shocked. This is Galatians one6 I'm astonished and shocked that some of you are abandoning the gospel and turning to a different gospel or message of good news. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who come and try to twist the gospel. There are some who say, Yeah, oh, sin's not that big of a deal, God's not that holy repentance isn't necessary, faith in Christ, who cares, right? Just trust yourself. People will come all along and say that. God will say, well, God made you just the way you are and you must, you know, he must accept you the way that you are when the Bible says very clearly all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us deserve to be right with God. We all need to repent of our sin, no matter what kind of sin it is. Those are the war cleats. Next thing he says, perhaps the most defensive weapon of all is the shield of faith. That's this big shield. Uh, It's called the door. It's a huge shield. What they do is they make these shields usually out of wood. Sometimes they cover them with metal, like they'd sheet them with metal. Or maybe sometimes they cover them with leather. And the reason they cover them with leather was so that they could submerge them in water or dump them in water before a battle, which means that this leather will hold the water kind of like a sponge, right, a little sponge. And you hold that up, and if someone shoots a fiery arrow at you, it will extinguish the fire that's on the end of it. Even where wood, if you have just a wooden sword, you got no outer protection layer, what's gonna happen? You shoot a fiery arrow at your wooden shield, well, the shield becomes a problem because it's gonna light on fire. He says in a similar way to those impressive shields that those Roman soldiers use, that's what faith, faith in God does for us. It can extinguish all the flaming missiles and arrows and javelins that Satan throws at you day in and day out. The shield of faith, trusting God. Faith means trust that you trust God, that's going to protect you from the most things. Point number four, I want you to find safety from spiritual attacks in the shield of faith in God. Find safety by trusting God, by saying, he he is my shield. In fact, that's what God calls himself. Early on in the Bible, like Genesis chapter 15, he's talking to Abram, and he says, Abram, I am your shield. I am your protector. You can't find protection anywhere else, but I, I will give you that. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. If you were in main service today, one of the verses that was the scripture verse for, I think it was the first song, Mighty Fortress, was I think we sang here today too, right? Uh, Was Psalm 62. Listen to what's said in Psalm 62. He says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Confidence, right? He says, On God rests my salvation and my glory. He is my mighty rock, He is my refuge. My refuge is God. Then he turns to himself and reminds himself something. Here's what he says Trust in him at all times. Then he says, Hey, turns to you, O peoples pour out your hearts before God. God is a refuge, a safe place for us. It's true for you. It's true for me. It's true for him. If you're in Christ, if you're safe in him, God is a refuge for you. The shield of faith just means simply that you'll choose to trust God. I want you to consider what these fiery darts or these fiery arrows of Satan might be for you. I gave a lot of long list of examples last week, but I want to just give you three today. Three attacks, three kinds of spiritual attacks that Satan will use on you, that you're gonna to face today, I, I guarantee it, if you're mindful of what's going on. The first one is obvious. Satan will tempt you, right? Temptation, right? that's the first big one. That's a kind of spiritual attack that Satan will throw at you. And we talked about temptation being, Satan will want to appeal to the desires that you have to do what's wrong. If you ever catch yourself thinking, oh, sin looks really good right now. I wish I could do that that thing. I wish I could be with that person. I wish I could do that thing. You're being tempted. In that, When you start thinking that, you're in temptation. You're being tempted. Just try it. Just do it now. Do it quickly before anyone sees. Nobody will know about what you did. It's fine. You'll be fine. It won't matter. You just forget about it later. Everybody does it. They're doing it. Don't you know that they did You are being tempted. You start thinking those things. You start, you know, not not that you're hearing voices or anything, but you start saying stuff like that in your mind. Guess what? You are being attacked. Those are the fiery darts, the missiles that are getting thrown at you. Temptation. How does faith in God protect you from temptation? Have you ever thought about that? That you say, oh, sin looks good? No, no, no. I trust that whatever God has for me is better. If he said this in his word, That he doesn't want me to do something. It's not because God hates me or doesn't want me to have what I want. It's because he cares for me and he wants better for me. I have faith in God. I don't need to have that thing. I don't need to try that thing. Just do it. Nobody will know. It'll be fine. No, no, no. God will know. And if God knows, it's like everybody knows. More important than everyone knowing. Just try it. Just try it once. Well, one sin is bad enough. James 2, right? keep the whole law, and stumble at one point, you're guilty of breaking all of it. It's not just because it happened once doesn't mean it's a big deal. It is a big deal. Temptation is the first one. The second one, uh, equally scary, and for some of us, we live this comfortably. These satanic attacks is doubt. Temptation and doubt. Doubt. What does doubt mean? Doubt is when we say stuff like this. God would not have let that happen to you if he loved you. He wouldn't have let that happen. Isn't God good? No, well, he he wouldn't have let this happen. Therefore, he either must not be good or he must not be there. Or he must not be in control. That's doubt. That's a satanic attack. That's a dart, a fiery dart. Does a lot of damage. Doubt also says things like this. I feel this way about something. God's word says this. God's word must be wrong. I must be right. It's doubt. You're just doubting God's word. You start thinking, man, well, if, if God's word says this, but I feel this way, and I feel like those two things don't go together, well, I must be right, and God must be wrong. That's called doubt. There have been people who have preached to you this, that, that you should like, be comfortable with doubt, and you should live in doubt. That's like so satanic. Even if people don't mean it to be. That's wrong. Doubt not necessarily is wrong. Just like temptation is not necessarily wrong. The goal is to get out of doubt. To not be doubting God's goodness. To not be doubting God's word. Don't be comfortable in doubt. It's wrong to be comfortable in doubt. Just like it's wrong to be comfortable in temptation. Don't build a house in the middle of temptation. right? It's probably a bad idea. Don't make yourself comfortable there. Don't make yourself comfortable in doubt either. It's wrong. To doubt God's word. See, how does the shield of faith protect us from doubt? When you think things like this, God would never have let this happen to me or my friend or this person if God really loved me. That doubt, when that doubt comes in, how does the shield of faith come up? You say things like this, right? What did Jesus promise? Jesus said, in this world, we will have tribulation. So God's actually just keeping his word. He's not being mean or flippant. He, no, he's just keeping what he said. I look in the Bible, and I look at even people like Paul, who get this, some kind of debilitating illness, and you think, oh, God doesn't love me if he let me get sick. God doesn't love me if my person in my life got sick. Look at what God did to even his own people. Look what he allowed to happen. Remember, what does it say? It was a messenger of Satan, this thorn in the flesh, whatever Paul's problem was. He's like, it's from Satan. But then he says, but God's in control. And I prayed, I prayed three times and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. So he said, I stopped praying that God would take the illness away because it was clearly there to stay. The shield of faith says, godly people, have been persecuted. Godly people have been rejected by their families. Godly people have been under serious illness. Godly people have died. Godly people have been martyred. Godly people have gone through all these different kinds of trials and temptations. And don't you say, because it's happening to you, that God must not be there, or God doesn't care because it's happening to you or to someone you know. I know that's hard, but we get so selfish when we start thinking that way. And it's natural, and I get why it's natural, but it's doubt. When you say, no, I trust that God is good, no matter what happens, because he is. When we doubt God's word, we say God's word must not be true because I'm feeling a certain way. What do you think proves true? What do you think proves to be a shield for all who take refuge in it? Your feelings? My feelings? My emotions? No, they're wrong all the time. Yours are wrong all the time. But God's word is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Always true. Proves true. Temptation, doubt. Third one, discouragement. Discouragement is a huge satanic attack, especially to God's people. If you're saved and you're one of God's people and yet you find yourself constantly discouraged and discouraged and beat down, you might be dealing with a satanic attack. You might be dealing with a fiery dart. Discouragement, you'll say things like this to yourself perhaps. I'll never, ever overcome that sin. I've fallen too many times. God probably gave up. God, if I haven't overcome the sin by now, God must not care. God must not be there. He, he probably gave up on me. Or, maybe the worst kind of discouragement we feel after we sin or after we fall, we say stuff like this to ourselves, which is a satanic attack. Mark my words. We say stuff like this. God will not take you back. I shouldn't even confess this to God. He doesn't care. He probably doesn't even want to forgive me. How does the shield of faith fight that kind of discouragement? Particularly for the last example, right? when you sin and you go back to God, you can say stuff like this. Well, 1 John 1, verse 9 says that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sin, he will do that. The shield of faith comes up, trusting God. It's like this uh, old image from the Pilgrim's Progress, right? John Bunyan wrote this book, and it was all about like these images of, uh, of the, the spiritual life and the, the Christian life as a battle and warfare, and in one of the scenes, Christian, the main character, gets taken captive into a castle that's called Doubting Castle, and he has this giant, this like ogre type thing that's trying to assault him, he's called the giant called Despair. So, giant Despair puts Christian in Doubting Castle, and for days, he's there in despair. You know what Despair tried to tell this 16th century analogy, this allegory? You know what he says? Kill yourself kill yourself, you're worthless. He says all these things, even in 1620, whatever, that it was written. Giant despair was saying that to God's people. At the end of that little story, Christian turns to his friend, hopeful, and says, what a fool I've been. This entire time, look, in my bosom right here, I've got the key called promise, which is able to unlock every lock and every bar and every door in Doubting Castle. I got God's promises. I forgot about it. I wasn't thinking about God's promises. But I've had it here the whole time. That's what the shield of faith is. It's like God gives us this trust and this faith in God when we become Christians. And we have it, but we don't even use it. We face temptation, doubt, discouragement. We've got to use the shield of faith. He protects us like a shield. The other armor that he says that he protects us with is with the helmet of salvation. Helmets are... Protecting the most important part of your body. right? The shield kind of protects everything, but the helmet, you can't go anywhere without a helmet. Helmets inspire confidence. One pastor wrote about this passage. He says, even young kids, when you put a football helmet on them, get all this confidence. right? They'll run against anybody. They'll fight anybody. They're confident. You stick a little football helmet on a three-year-old boy, right? you better believe he becomes a superhero instantaneously because he's got this confidence, because he's got some powerful helmet. That is the helmet of salvation for us. I've referred to Isaiah 59, this is now the third time in the sermon. And in that passage, it says that the Messiah is wearing the helmet of salvation. And what's important to keep in mind with all of this is the the armor of God. Whose armor is it? Well, the armor of God. Who does it come from? It's like the armor that Jesus wore that he's giving to us. So this helmet of salvation is not yours by right or by nature. It's Jesus' helmet of salvation. So point number five, have confidence wearing Christ's helmet of salvation. Have confidence. You can push on. Cuz you're saved. Your head, right? Where your life is. You're secure. You could lose a finger and still be alive. You can't lose your head and still be alive, right? It's the most important part of your body. Paul uses this imagery of the helmet of salvation, not just here. It's obviously it's quoted from Isaiah 59. We're going to read that whole passage in small groups on Wednesday. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he uses it again. This is 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 11. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate, bulletproof vest, of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Protects us all the time, the hope of salvation. That one day we'll be saved. Not just like looking back at what Jesus did, although that's important but also looking forward to what Jesus will do, that one day you will be saved completely from every sin, from every doubt, from every temptation, from every discouragement. You will be saved with a capital S completely one day. It says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, hey, guys, we're safe. We're in Christ. God hasn't destined us for wrath. He's destined us for salvation, Then he says about Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, whether we live to the end or not, whether we're living or dying, we might live with him. Therefore, he says, encourage one another with these words. So you've got the helmet of salvation, you've got the truth of salvation, you know you're saved. You can go to other Christians who are in discouragement and in doubt and in temptation and you can remind them, hey, we're saved and we're gonna be saved. Jesus died for us. And exactly what he said, encourage one another with these words. You can now bring that truth to other people. The funny part about all this is the truth that you have from God, the belt of truth. The righteousness that you know of in Christ. The gospel that you believe like uh, shoes on your feet. The Helmet of salvation. All these other things, right? Guess where you all know them from? The shield of faith. How do you know about these things? You know about them from the last one, number six here in our passage, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's how you know any of this. That's how you can be helpful for other Christians. That's how you can fight. That's the real offense you do. All that other stuff was defense. It was all you, you, you about protecting you and caring for you. And all that's important, right? In the battle but the only offensive thing you do is with the sword of the spirit using the word of God. So point number six, I want you to train to wield the word of God like a sharp sword. I want you to train to wield the word of God because some of us, right, we, we know the word of God. All of us know some of it. You've been here today. You know a little bit of it, at least today. I want you to train to know how to wield the word of God like a sharp sword. It's powerful. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword as Hebrews 4 says. But you got to learn how to use it. So many people have the word of God but don't know how to use it. They don't understand it. They don't read it in its original context. They take powerful words of God out of context and use them like a sword to do damage instead of doing good. I just want to challenge you today. I want you to train to to wield it rightly. Paul put it like this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15. You need to train, do your best to present yourself to God as a worker, as a workman, who has no need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of truth. Like, if I gave a machete to a four-year-old, how does that go? Let me ask that again. If I gave a machete to a four-year-old, how does that go? Correct. You're very smart. Bad. I gave a machete to, uh, I don't know, a Marine. How does it go? Well, it goes a lot better, right? Whatever attack needs to be, I'll take the Marine over the four-year-old. You need to train so that you know actually how to use the word of God. Hebrews 5 says that there's people who are unskilled in the word of righteousness, who are untrained, who have the word, but never think about it, never use it, that they don't have their powers of discernment. It says in the next verse, trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. They're just like coasting through life. It says they're, they're immature. If you went to main service, Pastor Mike referenced Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus and Satan had this duel where Jesus, remember, if we're believing what Isaiah says about Jesus, he comes wearing the armor of God, wearing the helmet of salvation, wearing the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth, all that. What happened in Matthew chapter 4 is Satan and Jesus have this face-off where Jesus is tempted. For 40 days and 40 nights, he doesn't eat bread. He's hungry. He says, while he was hungry, Satan came to him and said, if you are really the son of God, just turn this bread or turn these uh, stones, make them bread. You can do that, can't you? Satan is saying something that's partially true. He can do that. But because Satan's tempting him to do it, just to make his hunger go away, Jesus turns to him and says, quote, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the father. So, Jesus, what does he use? He has the belt of truth on. He has the breastplate of righteousness. He has the helmet of salvation, all of it. He's strapped tight. And guess what he uses? When he's attacked, what's the first thing he does? Sword of the Spirit. Have you not read? It is written. And he quotes the Bible. Are you trained enough to when you face temptation? I really want to sin. When you face doubt? I don't know if God's really good. Or you face discouragement can you know scripture passages to remind yourself of? Because that's ultimately going to make the shield of faith even stronger As if you actually know what the word of God says. We can't just coast through life. We can't just do whatever we want to do. That's so why i got to ask you that question again. How do you get ready in the morning? Do you just put on your clothes? Do you just brush your teeth? Do you just eat your breakfast? Or, do you open the sword of the spirit? Do you strap on the belt of truth and say, I will live truthfully today. I have the righteousness of Christ. I've got the shield of faith and I'm gonna trust God no matter what happens. Whatever When I'm in temptation, I'm gonna think, "Mm, shield of faith. When I'm facing doubt, I'm thinking, "Mm, shield of faith. Using the sword of the spirit, wielding it rightly. I hope that's how you get ready in the morning. If it's not how you get ready in the morning, it needs to be because we are truly in a war. Let me pray that God would help us do that. God, we trust that you're good, we trust that you're righteous, we trust that your word is true in every area that it talks about, we trust that your word is inerrant, we trust that your word is sufficient to teach us what we need to know about how to live as teenagers in today's world, how to live as people, men and women. I pray that you would just increase our faith in you, help us put this all into practice. I know all this information is no good if we're not thinking about it day in and day out. I know that we'll fall to temptation if we don't take up the shield of faith. Please help us. Please give us the motivation, even this afternoon, to think about all the temptation we'll face even today before we go to sleep. Pray that we would fight and that we'd win because we trust that we've got the right kind of armor. Help us take up that armor each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.